Hi, this is the Seattle Mama Doc Podcast, and I'm Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. We all work so hard to perfect how we pull off parenthood, and often, almost every day, we may not feel good enough. I'm here to help you face these challenges head on. This is a list of five things I think you should stop worrying about now. And I'm hoping this helps you rest a little easier and gives you wider margins for self-respect and confidence in raising your kids and surviving the mayhem of what it is to have young kids at home or even older kids at home. So this is a list of five things you can stop worrying about, and I'm going to give you guardrails for all of these. Of course, all of these have exceptions. I'm ready and waiting for your tweets and emails, but I'm telling you that in general, as a pediatrician and mom and social media gal, I'm saying I think there are five things we can chill out about a little bit. They list out this way, fever, vitamins, mold in toys, poop, and guilt. I'm going to break this down for you. So fever. You know, most pediatricians are really comfortable um, almost kind of puffing up our chests and talking about what we call fever phobia. The idea that, you know, many families get really nervous and unsettled when it comes to fevers and they do things they may not need to do. They worry in ways they may not need to worry. And we stand on our high horse with our hands on our hips and call it fever phobia. Reality is fever is a sign of infection most often. And it's an important part of an infection response in the ways that your kid gets a virus or even gets a bacterial infection and the immune system revs up. When it does that, part of what the immune system does is just overheat the body. And most research suggests that the reason that happens is, is it can actually deter, for example, a virus from replicating as much. And there are some studies that show fever actually decreases the duration of an illness that you can have from some and certain viruses. But that being said, it makes us feel really uneasy. And we typically use it as kind of proof, right? Like I remember growing up, and I'm one of those people who doesn't tend to run fevers very much, even when I'm pretty ill. And my mom used to, you know, feel my forehead, take my temperature. And if I was complaining about something, if I didn't have a fever, it was like, you're putting your shoes on and you're out the door. Um, And that's, you know, it's fine, but it's not conclusive. Um, And it shouldn't be conclusive in the this kid is sick or not, and it shouldn't be conclusive in, I worry about my kid when it comes to fever. Fever really can be necessary, and of course, you don't always have to make it go away, and that's the fever phobia advice. So, of course, knowing that your child has a fever and knowing how long your child has a fever is important if you're worried about a spreading infection or a more serious infection. Most viruses, including viruses that cause the common cold and even other viruses that just cause rashes or even vomiting and diarrheal illnesses, You get fever the first day and two, and then it typically fades away. Some viruses, one called adenovirus, for example, will sometimes cause fevers that are four or five days long. Influenza that causes the quote-unquote flu, that can cause fevers that literally last seven to ten days. But most typical infection, you get a fever for a day or two. And it typically goes away. Most pediatricians describe fever as really any temperature that's over 101.5. But anyone who's had more than one child knows there are just some kids who make booming fevers and there are some kids who don't make that big a fever. So we don't really focus that much on the number. We really focus on how well does the child appear? Are they able to do their regular activities? Are they able to sit up and eat regularly? Are they able to drink enough liquids that they stay hydrated? Are they able to cough and respond to their illness so that they're kind of fighting it off that way? So if your child's got a fever and is like droopy and clingy and whiny and won't get off the couch and you 
perk them up with a dose of acetaminophen, great. But you don't need to give acetaminophen or Tylenol every time you see the temperature change on the thermometer. We care more about not treating the thermometer, but really treating your child. And remember, fever may be one of those things that's helpful for these infections. So stop worrying so much that fever exists. It's unsettling and it's normal for you to be unsettled. I do not like the days that my children have fever because they get droopy. They look a little weird. They feel hot. It makes me nervous that there's something going on. I don't have as much control over. But have trust that typically fever is a good part of your baby's or child's intact immune system and that if it goes away two, three, or even four days, it's a typical and normal response to infection. The exceptions that I can't fail to mention are if your baby's under the age of three months and has a temperature over 100 degrees, your pediatrician needs to know about it right away. That's because, of course, fever at that age is often a sign of infection and infections in young babies can spread really rapidly. And then I think if you've got a fever that's up over 104 degrees and lasts more than a day or two, it's probably good for you to be reassured and to check in with your pediatrician. Often it's a part of a typical illness like adeno or influenza, but it's good to check in with them. And then lastly, if your child's got a fever over four or five days, that is a, lo- a bit longer where I think you should check in with the pediatrician. If your fever has no signs or symptoms associated with it, meaning if your child just has a fever and then a fever and a fever and there's no cough and there's no congestion and there's no vomiting and there's no diarrhea or there's no headache or anything else going on, and that persists, it's also probably wise to check in with your pediatrician. Okay, that was fever. Next thing you don't really have to worry about so much vitamins. So there is an enormous multi-billion dollar industry out there selling you supplements and micronutrients and minerals and additives and prebiotics and probiotics and postbiotics. I mean, there's a lot out there on the market. There are some good supplemental products that we use in kids. For example, prebiotics and probiotics or things like melatonin, supplements that help kids sleep. But vitamins are not a typical recommended supplement for typical developing healthy kids in the United States. The only vitamin that pediatricians and the Academy of Pediatrics recommends and other international leading groups, the only vitamin that we recommend giving your child and your baby every day is vitamin D. Now, vitamin D, the reason we want you to give your baby and child vitamin D is that we know that if you're protecting them from the UV radiation that comes from the sun, they won't convert through their skin, basically, and through even their diet, enough vitamin D to be used for their regular health and wellness. And we know over time that vitamin D has a really big role in in your bone health, but we're also starting to learn that it's got some roles, we think, in chronic diseases, even things like diabetes. It's also got effects, we think, in anti-cancer properties. So getting vitamin D from the very beginning, particularly if a mom is breastfeeding because mom doesn't give her baby enough vitamin D from breast milk alone, but even formula-fed babies we want from the very start 400 international units of vitamin D. It's really easy to do. You can get drops at the store and put it in on on mom's breast, or you can get a little suspension and put it right into your baby's mouth. Kids should be taking that on a daily basis as well, because again, if if you're following good recommendations of avoiding that midday direct sunlight, your child won't likely get enough vitamin D from their diet alone. There are great foods that have lots of vitamin D, things like egg yolks and oily fish and other things and fortification in things like milk. But in a typical regular diet, your child is getting all the vitamins and minerals they need, even if they're picky, typically, except for that vitamin D. 
So stop worrying about buying a whole host of multivitamins. Stop worrying about buying lots and lots of supplements, thinking that you're going to get kind of health halos from all these sprayed-on additives that are going to make your kid healthier. We don't have any data that that's true, and we don't have data that they even need a multivitamin on a daily basis. Just vitamin D, 400 to 600 international units every day. Stop worrying about vitamins. Okay, mold in toys. Recently, there was this big um, to-do, which, you know, kind of comes around here or there, depending on what products are getting attention. But there was a pediatric dentist that identified that Sophie the giraffe, you know, that like teething toy that's been around since like the 1950s. It's really like cute and basic and simple. It's got little nubbins all over it so your kid can kind of gum on it. But it does have a little hole in it so that it can, like a dog toy almost, so it can like inflate with air and squeak when you exit the air from it. And because of that, of course, and because it's constantly in a baby's mouth that's full of saliva and moisture, that little hole can get full of moisture and then stuff can grow inside because it's a dark, wet, moist environment. So there was this big to-do that all of a sudden um, Sophie shouldn't be used because she could collect mold. Now, there are lots of toys that collect mold, and I have a very strong memory of bath toys. I mean, like, disgusting bath toys. Like, unbeknownst to me, we used these bath toys with our babies. We threw them in the tub. I had these toddlers. And then one day I started, like, you know, like, moving them, and they were heavy, and they were full of water. I was like, I'm just going to get rid of all the water from these toys, like, in one fell swoop. And I'm telling you, I squished out those toys, and they basically, like, pooped out mold. It was the most disgusting thing. Now, did I freak out over my child's wellness and condition? No. I did throw them away. So that's the thing. Anything that can trap moisture and bacteria, like there's so much bacterial in your baby's mouth, and even then be in a place that could grow fungus or different kinds of mold, just throw it away if it gets covered in that stuff. I mean, you could try to sterilize by basically dipping these, you know, cleaning these kinds of toys in a bleach water bath here and there. But the other thing to do is just replace them and chill out. I don't think, you know, we know that molds can be provokers of things like asthma or even things like eczema, particularly when you live in a home where the walls are growing mold or you live in a place where your airway is constantly getting exposed to them. But these are not the kind of worries that you can have with those squishy toys. Poop is the next thing I think you can stop worrying about. Most pediatricians will tell you this. You have to worry about three different things in poop. You need to worry if the poop is black. That's because we worry that there might be blood that you can't really see in there. You have to worry if the poop is white or even like lighter than oatmeal. That's because we worry that your bile or your liver may not be doing the right thing because the reason that your poop has color is the bile that gets dumped into it. And then third, you don't want to have red. So poop can be any color except for red, black, and white. Stop worrying so much about the poop. That being said, people worry about poop because it does help you understand how your kid eats and how they're doing and how they're moving and how hydrated they are. And if your kid's constipated, you do need to worry about poop, but that's for a whole nother ballgame. When you're looking at your baby's poop, you know, if a baby is breastfed, it's going to be really seedy, really bright yellow, and probably really frequent. But then there are those outliers where babies that will breastfeed will poop only every five or six days. So again, a typical baby or a typical child will poop at least once a day and it should be soft as peanut butter or softer. But it doesn't matter if it's yellow or seedy or green or brown and it will vary based on what your child eats and it will vary based on what kind of bacteria are living in your baby's intestinal tract. After about six months of age, more than four bowel movements are likely too many. So 
Again, you want your kid to poop every day. Your kid might be constipated if they poop every two to three days. So check in with your pediatrician. But if your baby's and then if your baby's pooping or child is pooping more than four times a day, that's likely a little bit unusual as well and could be abnormal. But color isn't so meaningful again unless you're avoiding and making sure you're avoiding red, white, and black. Once a day poop is ideal in school age kids. Not pooping more than four times a day. And if your kid is pooping not but every other or every third day, probably need to check in on it. Other than that, you and your crazy, total, our crazy, crazy, crazy addiction to thinking about our kids' poop, particularly when they're young, we kind of need to get over it. So anyway, that's hopefully a little bit of info to help you stop worrying about poop. And then number five is kind of the hardest one. It's the guilt one, which I'll tell you, you know, I believe that we live in this time where parents are really trying to perfect parenthood at the point of kind of not just like self-flagellation and guilt and anxiety and and kind of depressed feelings about it, but ultimately it's detracting from our ability to be mindful and aware and joyful about these experiences. I'm going to follow this podcast, this the five things what not to do with I think the only five things you have to perfect in parenthood, and I'll get to that. But it's like I do think we're all suffering feeling like we have to perfect parenthood. And as I've written more and more about parenting and been a pediatrician and lived on the planet raising my own kids, I've realized there's really, if you nail five things, you are setting your child up for such a good and healthy life. And they're not that opaque. I mean, this is all pretty self-evident. First and foremost, you got to use a car seat and child safety restraints in the car from day one and all the way through the teen years following the rules of, you know, going from an infancy to a booster to seatbelt in the back and then not letting kids into the front until they're 13. You need to go outside every day and move, be without a ceiling. If you do that, you're getting your kid out and about in nature and moving. You need to provide them food every day at every meal and snacks. It's about half fresh fruit and vegetables. So we can engineer this and we can write a bajillions of books on how to feed our kids. But if we use whole foods and fill our kids with half fresh fruit and vegetables all the time, we're really going to nail it. If we vaccinate our babies as early as we can on time with the schedule, we will prevent remarkable suffering, both for them and people they know throughout their lifetime. And then lastly, the fifth thing is like, you just have to prioritize sleep too. And that's family sleep, not just your baby's sleep, but everyone in the family. I mean, if you do those five things and you do them well, I think you're at the 99th percentile of doing it right. And the rest is just kind of gravy. You know, I think we are we are stationed from the very beginning during pregnancy thinking about what to do and how to perfect it from an exposure level, from how we're exercising, from what we're eating, from how much we're working, from how much we're not working, from, I mean, what we're wearing with, um, you know, how we're measuring. I mean, it gets so judicious and fastidious very early, which is good to protect our pregnancies. But we start down the pattern of really feeling that we've got a ton of control and everything we do has really large impacts. You know, one of the one, one of the ways I see women suffer from the very beginning from a guilt standpoint is if a mom has a difficult time or an inability to breastfeed or if when a mom goes back to work her breast milk goes down in volume. I mean, it's a remarkable thing how guilty we can feel even when we're really doing our very very best. And the the you know, noted differences between a few ounces here or there of breast milk and a few supplemental ounces of formula in those kind of mid-infancy times just can't be worth these levels of guilt. Um you know, I think we also, I think, are really confused about the digital and screen time and how to raise our kids um, 
the right way when it comes to guilt in this kind of world that's really laden with technology. You know, just this year, we've changed guidelines at the American Academy of Pediatrics, for example, to help families understand. We don't think there's a lot of benefit from these screens um, before two years of age. Just really hard for children to learn a lot from a two-dimensional screen and really hard to demonstrate that they're improving the way a child's thinking and learning as a child's brain is changing so rapidly. But I also think at some point, if you're a grandparent, uh, you know, if a grandparent of a child is sitting down and using an app to interact, or if you allow your child to push and play with a device that delights them while you're playing and co-viewing with them, I just can't tell you that you're doing a lot wrong. Everything's got, you know, an exception in that if that's what you're doing four hours a day, you're just missing out on time where you could talk and sing and play with your child in a kind of analog way. But I think we have to get rid of guilt in that way, too. And then, And then I think... You know, one of the hardest things about raising families right now is, thank goodness we're living in this time where, you know, many, you know, 40% of American women are the breadwinners in their family. Most families in the United States, the far majority, have dual working parents, meaning that it isn't the most common scenario to have one parent working out of the house and one parent staying home. So the kind of conscious, constantly changing norms and means and opinions around how to do it best are really challenging. You know, we know that children don't suffer when their parents work. And in fact, um, we know with dual working families, in many cases, is that dual working family income can be more than a one family income and will allow for children to have different levels of protection. But I'll tell you, I mean, I think of anything I've felt most guilty about over the years, although I think guilt is, is not exactly the right word, it's kind of figuring out how much to work on a typical day or how much to work in a typical week or how much to travel for work or how much not to. And one of the things I think we have to do is think on it's always going to be a moving target for ourselves, for our partners, for a greater extended family that helps support us and our communities. But we've got to work on letting go of what's in the past and just keep thinking on the current, that if something's not right in the way that you're working and making a balance, having patience with yourself and evaluating what options you've got. Everyone will give you lots of opinion. Lots of people will tell you, I'm so lucky because I get to do whatever that is, whatever the fill in the blank sentence is, but only you and your partner or anyone else who's helping you raise a child knows really what's best. And not all of us have choice all the time on how we work and how much we work and where we work, but we do have to get rid of this guilt. Children thrive with working families. Children thrive with stay-at-home parents as well. And so much of this will be probably the way and our approach to our kids when we are working or when we're not. And so it's kind of letting go and giving yourself some bigger margins and kind of forgiving yourself for some of the things that happen and go on. And then lastly, you know, again, I think when it comes to eating, there's a, this is another place I think people feel a ton of guilt. And I don't think once you're guilty, you make better and better choices for your kids. You know, I don't think kids should be having sugar-sweetened cereals every morning. I know we don't want to have our children in this nation eating as much fast food as they are, where we know, you know, I think it's like a um, every day a third of U.S. families or something are, are participating or consuming fast food. But here's the thing. This is a this is a a a long-term endurance sport, learning how to feed your baby, learning how to feed yourself and your child. Let there be exceptions. You know, no food should be totally forbidden. It just becomes too desirable. If you say you can never have chocolate cupcakes again because they're not good for you and all you want are the, and you blacklist something like that, all your child's going to want is that chocolate cupcake. 
you know, of course it's all about moderation, but it's also about exceptions that can be included. And we should not feel guilty about it. I mean, I have this thing about Halloween. Like, people go bananas in the public sphere talking about all the candy and all the problems. I'm like, are you kidding me? If one day a year a kid wants to gorge on a bunch of candy, I'm just not going to get upset about it. So if you go and um, you make your mac and cheese and your chicken nuggets one night and you pat yourself on the back that that's okay. Because tomorrow, the balance is you're probably going to make sure you're back on that half of that plate being full of fresh fruit and veggies. All right, fevers, don't worry about them so much. Vitamins, it's only vitamin D. Mold in toys, not such a big deal, just get rid of them. Poop, just make sure your kid isn't pooping more than four times a day and is pooping at least ideally once a day and it just can't be red, black, or white. And then guilt, the hardest part do your best. Today you did your best. Whatever you did, check in with your child. Be as transparent as you can about how you feel about these choices and make sure you enjoy this amazing and probably the biggest gift of our life, the opportunity to parent. The reality is parenting is a high stakes job, but the good news is you've got this. Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at seattlemamadoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from. 